Hello, everybody. Welcome to Last Week in the Church. I'm your host, John Allen, editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. Also the host of this show, where we sort of raid the fridge. We, we take out stories that are a few days old by now, but we heat them up, serve them up piping hot and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. First, Pope Francis and the strange case of the disappearing loyal opposition. We've had almost a decade of appointments to the College of Cardinals by Pope Francis, and one striking thing is the absence of figures who clearly and publicly would represent a kind of alternative vision for the future of the Catholic Church. We'll try to explain why that may be and also unpack some of its consequences. Second, Super Mario in the lay role in the church, why the current crisis in the Italian government may actually hold an insight or two for calls for lay empowerment in Catholicism. Third, a penitential pilgrimage. Pope Francis is set to depart next week for Canada, and in advance of that trip, he is striking a decidedly sorrowful note we will explain why he's doing that and what the stakes of this trip may be. And then finally, the paradox of retired popes. In yet another new interview, Pope Francis once again dismisses rumors that he is getting set to resign anytime soon. But he does talk about what he might want to do should that day ever come, and also says that it might be a good idea to have new rules for the office of a retired pope. We'll explain why that might be and what the consequences could be. All of that and more is waiting for you this week on Last Week in the Church. So please, please, from the bottom of my heart, please stick around. All right, everybody, happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, July 19th in the year of our Lord, 2022. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Ours, frankly, was fairly quiet, although we have a friend who is actually getting set to move away from Rome for a while and is sort of looking to get rid of a lot of the stuff she's accumulated over several decades here in the internal city. So we went over to her house and picked out some really cool items that are going to, like, spice up our entertaining capacity. It was like a yard sale, except a yard sale in which absolutely everything is free. I mean, how cool is that? So, on the other hand, you could say, how sad is it that that was the highlight of our weekend? However you want to slice it, we had a fairly cool but relaxing weekend. Hope you did, too. All right, we begin this week with Pope Francis and the strange case of the disappearing loyal opposition. For a brief moment, return with me, will you, to those heady days of early 2005. Pope John Paul II was clearly ill, clearly in decline. Most people believed that the end was going to come sometime soon. And in a situation like that, it clearly invites speculation about who might come next. Now, just as a thought exercise, remember with me for a moment some of the names that were in circulation back then as possible successors to John Paul II. There was Cardinal Godfrey Danels of Belgium. Now, this was, of course, before his legacy was tarnished by the sex abuse scandals, but he had been a liberal titan in the Catholic Church for decades, a senior churchman, 
you know, leader, experience of leadership of a major archdiocese. There was Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor in the UK, similar story, seen as a kind of liberal progressive figure, had led the Archdiocese of Westminster for quite some time. We could go on. There was Cardinal Oscar Rodriguez Maradiaga of Honduras. There was Cardinal Claudio Umez of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And towering above all of those figures was Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini, Jesuit Cardinal of Milan, who for decades had sort of been the great liberal hope of the progressive wing of the Catholic Church as a possible next pope. And, and I could go on. I mean, this is just a partial list. There was Karl Lehmann in Germany, Walter Casper in Germany, and others, all of whom were cardinals who had been named by John Paul II. In other words, they got their red hat from the sitting pope, and yet they clearly represented a kind of different vision for where the church might want to go. So all of that made trying to handicap the conclave in April 2005 a fascinating exercise. Now, of course, in the end, that conclave did not opt for a break with John Paul. It opted for continuity with John Paul by electing Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who had been the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and kind of the intellectual architect of John Paul's papacy for more than two decades. Point is, at the end of the John Paul years, you had a college of cardinals that was composed of a number of prominent, respected, serious figures who wanted to continue the John Paul approach, but there was almost an equal number, or at least a significant presence, of figures who were respected, serious, well-known internationally, who embodied a kind of different point of view. Now, flash forward to 2022. Pope Francis is going to hold a consistory on August 27th. He will create 16 new cardinals who are eligible to, who are under 80 and therefore eligible to vote for the next pope. That will bring the number to 83 of the 134 voting cardinals at that point who have been uh, appointed by Pope Francis. 83 is only four short of 87, which is the two-thirds majority you would need to elect a next pope. Now, the striking thing is if you were to ask the question today, who in the College of Cardinals would represent that alternative point of view, right, that break with the Pope Francis agenda? Listen, I mean, those of us who cover the Vatican spend a lot of time having these conversations. I can tell you the names that usually come up. Okay? People might talk about Cardinal Peter Erdo of Budapest in Hungary, Cardinal Wim Eich in Holland, Cardinal Mark Ouellette, Canadian who currently heads the Vatican's Dicastery for Bishops, Mauro Piacenza, an Italian who currently heads the Apostolic Penitentiary, Malcolm Ranjit of Sri Lanka, those are the name, kind of names you would normally hear who would represent in some ways a somewhat more conservative or at least traditional or cautious alternative to Pope Francis. Striking fact, none of those guys, not one of them, got their red hat from Pope Francis. They are all John Paul II or Benedict XVI appointees. In fact, if you were to run the list of cardinals named by Pope Francis, those 83 electors we will have as of August 27th, you would be hard-pressed to find a single one who clearly, publicly, unambiguously would represent a sort of different outlook. Now, why is that? How do we explain this obvious contrast between the John Paul years and 
Francis years? Well, you know, of course, you know what critics of Pope Francis would say. They would say, oh, it's because he's a dictator. It's because he won't brook opposition. It's because he's made a fetish out of personal loyalty and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. You know, whatever you make of that, I would submit to you there are probably a few other alternative explanations. One is simply that a lot of the cardinals Pope Francis has named, it's not just that they don't represent an alternative, it's that we don't know what they represent. Because he, of course, has prioritized distributing red hats to the peripheries of the world, places that have never had them. So he's named a lot of unknowns, a lot of X factors. And maybe they actually do represent alternative points of view. It's just that we don't know what those are. They haven't had a chance to emerge yet, right? So that's one possibility. Second possibility is that John Paul just got historically lucky. He became Pope in 1978. That was 13 years after the close of the Second Vatican Council in 1965. The Catholic Episcopacy at that point was dominated by men who had risen to prominence during the council, who had established track records as serious intellectuals, leaders with gravitas, men of substance. So John Paul had a wide range of options to choose from. Some of them were just slam dunk obvious cardinals of the Catholic Church. Perhaps the truth of it is, the lay of the land is just different today, and it's unfair to blame Francis for not finding what doesn't exist. Talent isn't evenly distributed in every generation. It's just a plain fact. Third, we live in an era of incredible political extremism. I mean, in the John Paul years, it was still possible to talk about a loyal opposition in which both elements of that were equally true. That is, guys who might have a different vision, but who were deeply loyal to the present pontiff and who would have his back because that's what it meant to be a cardinal. Now, maybe today the situation is just different and Pope Francis is not unreasonably concerned that should he appoint somebody with a different outlook, for them, the opposition part of the formula would be much more important than the loyal part. In any event, here's, I think, the one problem with the absence of a loyal opposition. You know, during the John Paul years, if you were a liberal Catholic, you felt put upon in a lot of ways, right? You were upset. You thought that Vatican II was being rolled back, that things were being re-centralized, and that a conservative agenda was being rammed down your throat. Okay. But at least you could look around. You could look at Milan with Martini. You could look at London with Murphy O'Connor. You could look at Chicago in the States with Joseph Bernadine. Etc. You could look at Belgium with Danales, and you could say, well, at least my point of view is represented at senior levels in the church. It may not be winning all the fights, but at least there are people who are serious and in prominent positions with whom I can identify. The problem today is that in the absence of such figures, then what you end up with are guys like Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, the Italian former nuncio to the United States, who, quite frankly, most people would say, has pretty extremist views that are on, on many things that are hard to take seriously. But in the absence of more centrist and serious figures, he becomes, he enjoys a cachet that, quite frankly, he doesn't deserve. Because there isn't anybody with more substance, and in, in any way, closer to the center, with whom what you might call the loyal opposition could identify. 
It's a calculated risk by the Francis Papacy. We will see how it plays out. All right. Second, Super Mario and the lay rule in the church. So, look, the Italian government right now is on the verge of collapse. Now, I know what you might say. What else is new, right? I might as well be reporting to you that the sun rose this morning or that the sky is blue today because Italian governments are constantly on the verge of collapse and you would be 100% right if that were your reaction. However, well, let me just sketch the current lay of the land to try to make a point. All right, so Mario Draghi has been the prime minister of Italy since February 2021 in the middle of the COVID crisis. By all accounts, he's been a pretty successful prime minister, former head of the European Central Bank, the guy credited with saving the euro during the eurozone crisis. He's been the strongest European leader on Ukraine. He's pushed through an ambitious economic recovery plan in Italy. He presided over more than 6% economic growth last year, which is a miracle by Italian standards. And he's probably the most respected Italian leader in, well, God, I mean, it's hard to know how long, but internationally, his credentials are just impeccable. You might think that would make him invulnerable, but no, because one member of his coalition is a left-wing party called the Five Star Movement. It's a progressive populist movement. They've seen their poll numbers drop because they're now perceived as part of the establishment. So they're trying to reposition themselves once again as outsiders. They have more or less withdrawn from Draghi's majority. Draghi is not interested in governing on the basis of a razor thin majority in which just a few personalities could block anything he wants to do. We don't know what's gonna happen. Here's how this connects to the lay role in the church. Mario Draghi, the current prime minister, is a Jesuit educated, faithful, mass going Catholic. The leader of the Five Star Movement is a former prime minister in Italy, Giuseppe Conti, who, if anything, is even more Catholic than Draghi is. He's a fervent devotee of Padre Pio. Conti actually has an uncle who was a Capuchin priest who was an aide to Padre Pio at his shrine in San Giovanni Rotondo. He carries a Padre Pio holy card in his wallet. In other words, the leader of the current government and the guy who right now is blowing up this government are both ardent, well-educated, serious practicing Catholics. What's the point? Well, the point is this. Ever since the Second Vatican Council, it has been common parlance in the Catholic Church to talk about how it is important to empower the laity, to get more laity in leadership position. And that has been turbocharged, of course, by the experience of the clerical sexual abuse scandals when we saw the toxic effects of, leading, of leaving clergy on their own to make decisions in splendid isolation without consulting everyone. And we know the ruin that that led us to. So today, pretty much everybody agrees we should have more laity and leadership, and Pope Francis has tried to cash in that idea by appointing many laity, including many women, to leadership positions. Most recently, appointing three women to the Vatican panel that picks future bishops. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I think empowering laity, I speak now as a layman myself, empowering laity is a great idea. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished, to quote Shakespeare. But we just should not be under any delusions that the more laity we have in leadership, the greater unity of purpose or cohesion we're going to have. Because the current Italian situation 
gives us the spectacle of two lay leaders, both of whom are deeply devout, deeply practicing, equally inspired by the social teaching of the Catholic Church, and who are currently tearing the country apart. And all I'm saying is, yes, let's have more laity in leadership. However, let's not kid ourselves that that means we are going to be a less fractious, less divided, less rambunctious church. If anything, it's going to be more of all of that. You could probably make a case we'll be healthier for it. All right. Third up this week, a penitential pilgrimage. Pope Francis is currently scheduled to depart on July 24th for Canada. He will be in Canada until July 29th. He will then fly back and returns to Rome on the 30th of July. Now, this is all assuming that the Pope actually goes. Of course, already in the month of July, he had to call off one international voyage to South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo because of chronic pain in his right knee due to osteoarthritis. However, all signs are right now that the Pope fully intends to go to Canada. Supposedly, the therapy he's been undergoing has made life a little bit easier, and he intends to make the trip. I would note that on Sunday during his traditional noontime Angelus address, he announced he was leaving for Canada on the 24th, God willing, which does leave a slight degree of wiggle room, but we all at this stage are assuming the Pope is actually going. Now, during that Angelus address, he referred to this as a penitential pilgrimage. Here's why. The main purpose of this trip is for Pope Francis to meet the various indigenous communities in Canada, that is, the native peoples of Canada. And this because a legacy of abuse of indigenous persons in Canada, some of it performed at the hands of personnel of the Catholic Church, has recently come to light and has become, in a way, the kind of dominant political issue in Canada. We have seen revelations about church-run residential schools where indigenous children were ripped away from their families and placed in these schools in an effort to make them Canadian, that is, to assimilate them to Canadian culture, and were subject to appalling abuses, in some cases, being buried in unmarked graves. And these revelations have caused enormous scandal, enormous hurt, and once again shown a spotlight on the suffering of indigenous persons in North America, particularly in Canada. Pope Francis recently met with three different delegations of Canadian indigenous persons here in Rome. He apologized to each of them and apologized to all of them collectively. He is once again during this trip certainly going to apologize. He will be meeting with groups of indigenous people repeatedly throughout the trip and certainly will once again strike that sort of penitential note. It's worth saying, however, that the indigenous persons of Canada and their advocates in Canadian society are expecting more than mere apologies out of this trip. I recently spoke to one Canadian academic who has studied these issues very carefully who said that the litmus test Canadians will use to evaluate the success or failure of this trip isn't simply whether the Pope apologizes. They take that for granted, and it's welcome. But, they say, they also want a clear commitment to opening the archives, the church archives in Canada, to establish exactly what happened to all of those indigenous children who were placed in church-run schools. 
and they expect a significant and serious commitment to financial reparations. And if those two things don't result in fairly short order from this trip, the warning is there could be a great deal of frustration. So we will obviously be paying very careful attention to see how this plays out. One other footnote, some of the Catholic community in Canada is also concerned that the government in Canada under Prime Minister Trudeau may actually be looking at this trip as a kind of, oh, for lack of a better way of putting it, get out of jail free card. That is, they may want to may be looking at this as an opportunity to shift enough of the blame for what happened to indigenous persons to the Catholic Church that it escapes notice that a great deal of this also happened under government sponsorship and that there was a great deal of government culpability and therefore responsibility here as well. We will also see how that plays out. All right, finally, this week, the paradox of retired popes. So, as you all know, we've discussed it at length on this program. Of late, there have been a fairly fevered number of rumors making the rounds that maybe Pope Francis was getting ready to step down. Now, by now, all of that has been shot down repeatedly. The Pope, on multiple occasions, has said he has no intention of resigning right now. But nevertheless, it has kept the idea of retired popes in the year. So, Pope Francis recently sat down for another interview, this time with two Mexican journalists, in which he talked about a wide range of issues, but, you know, the resignation issue came up. He once again repeated he has no intention of, of resigning anytime soon. But he did talk about what he might want to do should that day ever come. What he said was, well, if I ever do resign, I would like to be assigned to some Italian parish somewhere where I can hear confessions, visit the sick, just do basic pastoral stuff, right? which is a, obviously a very noble and a very pastoral instinct. It does raise, I think, in the eyes of many observers, some rather obvious sort of practical questions, like imagine the parish to which Pope Francis would be assigned. What kind of security would be necessary to maintain safety and order at that place? I mean, basically, you would be talking about a parish that would be in lockdown for the entire time the Pope was there. Not entirely clear how that might work. Also, in terms of the potential for the Pope to be a distraction to whoever his successor is, I mean, it's one thing when a retired Pope is living basically in seclusion in a, a former convent on Vatican grounds. On the other hand, if he's out there in some random parish, running into people all the time, hearing their confessions, visiting the sick, serving meals to the hungry, and so on, then the number, the possibility of, of that pope constantly being in the spotlight and kind of casting a shadow over whoever's actually trying to run the show, you know, many observers worry about all of that. We will see how all that plays out. But another aspect of this interview that is very interesting is that Pope Francis said, listen, having Pope Benedict around has not been a problem. It's been a strength because he is, this Francis's words, he is a holy and discreet person. However, he said, it might be a good idea to have rules for retired popes should this happen again, right? Should another pope, whether it's him or somebody else, should another pope choose to resign? Now, what do you mean by rules? 
Well, ever since Pope Benedict made the decision to step down, there are some who have questioned various aspects of those choices. They have said, well, maybe he shouldn't have continued to hold the title of pontiff. He shouldn't be emeritus pontiff. Maybe he should have just gone back to being whatever, Cardinal Ratzinger, Archbishop Ratzinger, Father Ratzinger, or whatever. You know, others have said maybe he shouldn't have continued to wear white and other insignia of the papal office. Others have said, well, maybe he shouldn't have lived at the Vatican, which in, in their eyes might invite confusion. Others have said, maybe he should have had to sign the ecclesiastical equivalent of a non-disclosure agreement and just agreed to go completely quiet until the end came. And the cumulative effect of all that is some people have said, there is a need for rules governing the office of a retired pope. Now, if you want to read something really smart about this whole discussion, in fact, probably the smartest thing I've ever read about it, I would point to you a piece written by Crux's managing editor, Charlie Collins, in January 2020. The headline is, A Retired Pope is a Rare Thing. And here's the point Charlie makes. Basically, we don't get retired popes very often. I mean, we hadn't had one for more than 600 years. And there's this old legal adage that hard cases make bad law. Okay, like, so, so go through all that. Okay, so Benedict decided to live at the Vatican. Well, so where else were you going to put him, first of all? And would that have been more distracting, actually, than him having a Vatican residence? him deciding to take the title or him taking the title of emeritus pontiff. Theologically, once a pontiff, always a pontiff. Pope Leo the Great is still called Pope Leo the Great, right? So there's no sense in, and even, even if he decided to just be called Father Ratzinger, henceforth, you think people would forget he was actually once the Pope? I mean, you know, it's silly. It, basically, Charlie's conclusion is, that for something that is so rare, for a kind of black swan event, maybe it's kind of wasted energy to try to, you know, design or shape some new law for something that just doesn't happen very often in any way, kind of has to be figured out on the fly when it does happen. All I know is that we have had now almost 10 years of coexistence between Pope Francis and Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI. And I would just say two things about that. Number one, is anybody, and I mean this seriously, is anybody on the planet actually confused about who is in charge of the Catholic Church today? I don't think so. I think we all know it's Pope Francis. And secondly, would the Catholic Church be healthier if we drove a pope, a former pope, who represents a somewhat different vision? Would we be healthier if we drove that figure into an, a kind of ecclesiastical gulag and pretended he had never existed? Or is it actually healthier for the Catholic Church to embrace and celebrate the diversity that makes us different than a political society or a sect? Good for thought. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for watching. We will be here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, my charge to you is stay safe, stay healthy in late July, for sure. Stay cool. Have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.